Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blinkist. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my fellow co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. We're back. It's been a fortnight. It has been a fortnight, uh, except for those people who are Relay FM members, because they got to hear us talk about uh, Apollo 13 last week. That's right. It was a lot of fun, and you should go check it out. If you're not a member, you can do so by visiting relay.fm slash liftoff, and there are some buttons there. And it's a whole podcast feed, so there's lots of stuff from lots of uh, different shows. Uh, there's Reconcilable Differences today with John Roderick that is about nine hours long. Mm-hmm. All sorts of good stuff. Yeah, there's. I'm doing a test. I'm a computer in a text adventure. Um, you are. With, with Mike and Gray. There's a, a clockwise top four mashup. Lots of things for your membership you get, including us talking for more than an hour about Apollo 13. So check that out. So to today, yeah, to today's business, we are going to talk about exoplanets. But first, mm-hmm. uh, as our custom and as any good mission, you have a pre-flight checklist of things to run through. Yeah, you always want to make sure you do that. Uh, because otherwise, uh, bad things can happen. You gotta you gotta run through the checklist. Yep. So what's right. what's at the what's at the uh, top of the? It looks like Jupiter's at the top of the checklist. It is. So Juno, uh, we spoke about a while back. It has done its first close lap of Jupiter, and actually the closest it will get to the planet. And we're hoping for some uh, some images from this. NASA hasn't really released many. They had one on its approach. But as of our recording, at least today, there haven't been a lot of images past that. So hopefully right. in the coming days, we'll start to see some of this imagery. Right. Which Although this is not the, you know, these aren't the science orbits. These are right. these uh, capture orbits that they're doing. We talked about it when we, when they went into, uh, when they first went into orbit around Jupiter, that there are, I think, two of these yes. capture orbits that are like 40 days long or something like that. They're very long. And then they they uh, kind of reorient and they then they start their science mission where they're in, they're in the very close orbits. But they've got these two very long orbits and it's just completed the first one. Right. So it's notable that it's sort of shifting into its mission, but also this is the closest it will come. So um, Until they so yeah. crash it into the planet at the end. But then it's count. much closer. Mm. Then it's it's like a the warm embrace of death. Yeah, it's a part of it at that point. <laughs> The High Seas One-Year Crew, uh, Jason, you may remember, this was the group of um, people, scientists, locked away for a year inside basically a dome on a Hawaiian mountain. On the top, to, of, top of a volcano, yeah, on the top yeah, of Mauna Loa. To simulate a trip to, to Mars or some other uh, body. But it's been a year, and they are out now. There was a nice article in USA Today, of all places, uh, talking about it and had some quotes from, from the people coming out. And it's not the end of the program. High Seas plans to send crews into the simulation uh, for eight-month missions, so a little bit shorter, both next year and in 2018. So if you want to get away for a little while, <laughs> and you're a scientist, I guess, uh, you can you can send in an application and be part of the next High Seas mission. Yeah, so what they basically do is they stay in their little dome, and they can go outside, but they have to go outside in a space suit. In a space suit, yeah. And, and the, the the reason they choose Mauna Loa is those those Hawaiian shield volcanoes are actually not bad Mars analogs up above the uh, the tree line. I've been up on the top of Mauna Kea, and you know there's nothing. There's it it is very a Mars like kind of terrain, and so that's where these people are. So they can walk around, and yeah, they can see the clouds and know that there are people surfing down there. But uh, they have to be either in the spacesuits outside. R- article I read said that you would do that um, sometimes just to get away because although we're social. Uh, 
uh, beings, humans. It's a uh, bit much. Not all the time was the quote. <laughs> That I that I saw from one of the participants. Sometimes you got to get away because they're in very close quarters. Um, they couldn't do direct communication. Like everything was like a a text message on a on a twenty minute de- mm-hmm. delay or something. They were trying to really get the isolation feeling and see you know. And this is this is not just a uh, can we do this thing of like can we go into space? This is really like how will people react and what can we learn from that in terms of dealing with long duration? Since we uh, don't want to send people out on the first long duration space flight without some idea of of how we're going to be, uh, you know, how people will react uh, psychologically to that kind of isolation and uh, also being cooped up together in a small space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a photo in the USA Today article uh, with the mission commander and she is in a spacesuit outside and it. There's a beautiful snow-capped mountain in the background. Yeah, that's but Mon- in the, Mauna Kea, in, yeah. In the foreground, I mean, it looks it looks like what you imagine Mars looking like, very rocky, very dry. Yeah, it's there's nothing there's nothing up there. It's 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 a good Mars analog in that way. You think Hawaii and you think tropical and all that, but if you drive one up 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 one of the giant uh Hawaiian volcanoes like Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea and Haleakala, if you drive up any of them, you will go through like all of the biomes until you get above the tree line and then there's like nothing up there and and uh that's a good place to pretend you're on Mars. Uh so up up next we have some SpaceX news. They have yeah. not reflown a Falcon 9 with a customer hardware on it, but that is going to change uh, at the end of the year and sometime in quarter four. Um, it was announced, I think, just this morning um, that there's going to be a satellite, um, a geostationary satellite for uh, be put in orbit over Latin America uh, flying later this year. Yeah, and so they, they got a coupon for <laughs> the already flown rocket booster. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or as SpaceX put put it, a SpaceX flight proven rocket booster. Yeah, this that, isn't that's... this isn't used or previously owned. This is already tested in and successful. It's a veteran. <laughs> so it's it's them. the first time um, this this mission, like I said, is a satellite. Um, but the uh, the big news is they're finally reusing one of their rockets. And that's, of course, the whole idea behind their company. So hopefully it goes well. Uh, one other piece of, of news. This this is in the prob- probably not aliens category, actually, <laughs> which we like to do every now and then because it's very exciting. Um, so there, there was a blog post uh, by uh, a guy named Paul Gilster on a blog called Centauri Dreams. So we'll put in the show notes. It's uh, titled An Interesting SETI Candidate in Hercules, and it is a very reasoned article that basically says there are some Russian radio telescope astronomers who found a signal in May 2015 from a particular star that is unusual. And now these unusual signals happen not, I wouldn't say a lot, but SETI, when you're looking at the universe uh, and you also have to deal with interference and things like that, you will see things that are weird and then have to do extra work to try and see, is that something? And there also is a history of seeing a weird spike that could be something and then never seeing it again. And you have that question of like, did I just miss the radio call that would prove that uh, 
extraterrestrials exist or was that you know nothing uh, just something passing by or a weird thing in the instruments so it's a it's a very measured story um that that says that this is an interesting possibility that merits further follow-up which is perfectly reasonable it's a star called hd 164595 super catchy but there are lots of stars out there you'd run out of names so we use numbers uh it's got 0.99 solar masses so it is the size of the earth or size of the sun so it's a very familiar sized star 95 light years away and uh it's uh metallicity which is like the amount of heavy elements uh which basically says something about what generation of star formation it is it's about the same as the sun so it's a very solar system like uh like uh, system and we know that there's a planet there there's at least one planet there um as with many exoplanets as we'll talk about it's the, the one we know about has got a period of 40 days so it's it's what they call a warm neptune it's it's much smaller than jupiter but it is very very close to the 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 star there could be other planets there so it's an interesting system it's got some things that are familiar about it and they got this weird signal from it so it might be it might be something now uh, that was the measured blog post. I also uh, will put a link in the show notes to The Observer, which posted a story called Not a Drill. SETI is investigating a possible extraterrestrial signal from deep space with the subhead, if the signal is truly from an alien world, it's far more advanced than ours. <laughs> well, dun, dun, dun. punch it up. It's very exciting. The point that that the story is making and that the original post makes is basically the power involved in this uh, signal is so strong that if it was um, a beacon that was being sent everywhere, it would be require what's called a Kardashev Type 2 civilization. Um, now, I don't know if you uh, looked up. Did you look up the Kardashev uh, scale? A little bit. It's. Uh... Uh, we should probably put that in the show notes, too. Um, it's, uh, yeah, Kardashev scale basically is like the levels of civilizations based on the order of magnitude of power available to them. So a Type 1 is basically us which is um, energy cap- capability equivalent to the so- the solar energy that, that lands on the Earth. So if we, you know, this is this is what we can get. A type 2 civilization, it's an order of magnitude more energy consumption. This is basically like you build a Dyson sphere around your star and collect all the energy from the star. And a type 3 civilization can, can, can uh, use all the energy of an entire galaxy, right? That's pretty impressive and... and uh, that would be, uh, yeah, we would know if those guys were around, I think, um, unless we're inside it now. Anyway, what what the, the Type 2, which is like super amounts of power required, Dyson Sphere level, is if this was a beacon that was being sent everywhere from this system, that's the level of power they would have to have, which is probably pretty unlikely. Um, if it was a beam focused on us, if they were going from star to star and sending little messages to nearby stars that were similar to theirs, hoping someone would pick it up on a narrow beam, it would probably be something that you could power from a type one civilization like us. So it can't be ruled out. And, you know, it's probably not aliens is what I'm saying. Probably not. Probably not. So we're going to get into exoplanets, but Jason, mm. first you want to tell us about our sponsor? Yeah. Uh, so this week's edition of Liftoff is brought to you by Blinkist. 
If you've ever found yourself with more book recommendations than you could ever read, if you've got a desk full of books piled up, they're waiting for you and you can't find the time, Blinkist takes great works of nonfiction books and distills them into powerful, quick-to-digest units that they call Blinks. Blinks are two-minute reads built around memorable key messages that give you the main concepts of an entire book in just 15 minutes. You can read while you wait in line or over lunch. Blinkist offers over 1,700 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Great ideas about science, history, psychology, and more from thought leaders you wish were your teachers. For example, An Astronaut's Guide to Life by Chris Hadfield, the test pilot and astronaut, the first Canadian to spacewalk. You may know him from his uh, David Bowie Space Oddity music video. He offers insight into life in the space business from his training and liftoff and time in space to research and returning back to Earth. Blinkist has apps on iOS, Android, and of course you can watch this stuff on the web. So you can take Blinkist anywhere and there's a send to Kindle feature making reading and listening on all of your favorite devices even easier so go to this web url it is bit.ly bit.ly slash blinkist fm for your free three-day trial and save 20 percent on your first year subscription you'll find that we have a lot to learn from people in space Mm. thanks blinkist so exoplanet 101 before we get into this we should define what exoplanets are i suppose they are planets around other stars the end yes Done. Good, okay. Good well, thanks. To jo- thanks for joining us. <laughs> there are planets around other stars. Um, there are, depending on the number you look at, I pulled this one from uh, from NASA. Three thousand three hundred and seventy four exoplanets uh, known to date. Right. That's a lot. That's a lot of planets. I mean, we only have eight. <laughs> that's that's a lot lot more. Nine, not nine. Just eight. Just eight. So far, confirmed eight. Maybe uh you know planet X out there maybe many have been found by um the the single uh, Kepler mission which we've spoken about uh, at length in the past mm-hmm. um, that that mission just blew this wide open on average we believe there to be at least one exoplanet per star um, but almost but our knowledge is limited more or less to uh, the Milky Way itself. Right. I mean, so much of of this story is going to be what we know based on what we can see and what we observe close to us. And so, yeah, you know, it's our galaxy and our little part of our galaxy and what we can see in our solar system. And um, but but, you know, we always assumed that other solar systems had planets, other star systems had planets. We didn't know for sure until 1995. Which it, it, it's it's amazing how recent all of this is. Uh, you and I were listening to some lectures from two thousand and nine, and the the for background information it was great, but all of his numbers were, were obsolete because we've discovered so many more since then. I, I laughed out loud. I was I, you know again I mentioned this before, and we'll put a link in the show notes. These these lectures by uh, Richard Pogie, who's an astronomy professor at Ohio State, that I listened to back in two thousand nine two thousand ten on my commute. And uh, now he, you know, you listen back to those and he's, he says things like, we found, it's amazing, we found 300 exoplanets. And I'm yeah. like, um, I think it's more like 3,000 now and it, and it is just uh, eight years later. So the, 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 since 1995, um, we've gone from zero to 3,374 known. 
and it just keeps coming fast and furious. This is something where it was when we were growing up learning about the universe, it was always one of these, no one knows. We assume there are planets, but there's no proof that there are planets around other stars. It's like, we now know there are planets around right. other stars. We have seen them or their effects. And that's a, that's a huge change just in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And these are not to be confused with rogue planets, mm. which don't orbit any stars. So uh, exoplanets need to have a star that they orbit around. These rogue planets really should be considered as like separate items. And if they're gas giants, they could even be counted as like sub brown dwarf stars. So you have this sort of class of, of object in between exoplanets and stars that sort of this middle ground. Yeah, there's that question of like if something is a big ball of gas, but it's not a star, what do you call that? Is that a planet? Uh, you know, if it's Jupiter, then it's definitely a planet. But if it has no star that it's going around, it's just kind of going through space, but it didn't ignite into a star, then what is it? And then there are, in solar system formation, there are also, you know, planets that just get ejected and and are flying through the universe, which I always thought is like one of the weirdest and coolest and also saddest things. It's the, a little sad. The idea that there's a planet that may even be like a planet that's got some warmth and is radiating and all that, and it, but there's no light other than from distant stars, and it has no companions and no orbit, and it's just kind of uh, torn off and flying through the universe. It's pretty sad and creepy. It's a little, it's a little unsettling. Yeah. So this has been, uh, exoplanets have been in the news again very recently. Um, you want to talk about this new discovery? Yeah, so this is the this is the big news, and that's why we decided to go ahead with the exoplanet episode uh, in, in this uh, episode, because uh, the, there was a discovery of, a, uh, of an exoplanet uh, found around Proxima Centauri, which is ne- notable because that is the closest star to the Earth, Proxima Centauri. We think about Alpha Centauri as being the closest star. Uh, of course, Alpha Centauri is uh, two stars, actually. That it's a binary star system. And then we, we think there's actually this third companion. It's, I think, not 100% proved that it's bound gravitationally to them, but they think it probably is, given that they're all kind of moving in the same direction. But it's it's more distant um, and and dimmer and closer to us so it's the closest star to us and they um and and there's a group called the pale red dot group which is trying to find planets around uh, red dwarfs these small cool stars like proxima centauri which uh, are by far the most common stars Mm -hmm. in the galaxy and they also the longest lived so they'll be around for a long time and so they tried to uh look at proxima centauri um, using a method that we're going to go into about like, one of the exoplanet methods. And they came back and said, okay, we've got something. It's a little bit more massive than the Earth, and it's orbiting this star very close to the star, but it's a much um, it's a much cooler star. So the habitable zone of a star, in terms of the heat from the star, is going to be able to keep a planet with liquid water on its surface, theoretically. Something that's basically, in our solar system, you'd say probably extends from the orbit of Venus to the orbit of Mars. That would be sort of our habitable zone, mm-hmm. um, that you wouldn't just have a big ice ball or a completely you know, melted Mercury kind of planet. Um, on, these, on these cooler stars, that's much closer in toward the the, the star itself because the, you know that's that's where you have to huddle next to that star for warmth and they found this planet it's in that zone and that is a big deal now it's it's that's 0.05 astronomical units so that is um very 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 close to that star compared to 
us and even Mercury. But the fact remains, it is a roughly Earth mass planet found orbiting in a habitable zone around a star. And we've found those before. Um, they're notable because even when we were listening to that lecture from 2008, we hadn't found them. And he was predicting that in the next year they would find one. But uh, we found them now. But what, what makes us different is it's next door. It's far away, but it is closer than any other solar system, Proxima Centauri. And so that's really exciting because um, maybe one day we could actually send a probe out there. We would need a dramatically new technology in order to do that. But maybe when, one day we could send something out there. And certainly it's close enough that we might be able to get a look at it in a way that we can't for something that's many, many, many uh, tens or hundreds of light years away. Right. We're talking what, like 4.25 light years away? Yeah, yeah, four point two five. So it's it's a a little tad closer than uh, you know, like like several hundred AUs. So it's but uh, closer than Alpha uh, Alpha Centauri A and B, who are are uh, um, the the binaries. It's closer than that. So um, now there's been a lot of sort of like what I was saying about probably not aliens. There, there's been a lot of misreporting about this. There was a really nice story that I actually uh, that we should put in the show notes that was on Mashable. Um, by Miriam Kramer, that basically the headline is stop describing a planet as Earth-like unless it really is, um, because this this planet, which is Proxima Centauri b, is what it's called for now. Um, we don't know if it's Earth-like in any way in, in the sense that does it have water? Does it have an atmosphere? All we know is that it is a, it is around Earth mass and it's what we consider a habitable zone. So that's good, but we're going to need a little bit more, as, as Miriam Kramer says, a little more patience before we really should start calling something Earth-like. It's an Earth candidate. It might be Earth-like, and that's really exciting, but... Um, we don't really know much beyond that. And these dwarf stars, these red dwarf stars, are often called flare stars. And Proxima Centauri is absolutely a flare star. Sometimes it gets much brighter and then it gets much dimmer. So the, these these small stars are much less well-behaved than our sun. And so you're talking about a planet that's very close to that star and that star flares up. And so it may be, bad and this combo. is one, this is, it's very bad potentially. And it may be that although there are many planets that are Earth like, or sorry, sorry, Miriam Kramer, uh, that are Earth sized inhabitable zones around these red dwarf stars, none of them may be habitable if red dwarf stars fundamentally have these stability problems that, that mean that they're mostly habitable, but every, few years there's a big flare and that and, and that makes them uninhabitable also that being that close to the planet they may be tidally locked which means that one face of the planet is facing the sun the whole time and the other one's facing away and uh so you you start to wonder like you know could it be habitable it still could but it would not be like the earth at that point it would definitely not be earth like even if it had an atmosphere even if it had liquid water because you've got one side permanently facing away and one side permanently facing toward and would there be life kind of on the in the twilight zone around it or not Ask Rod Serling. I don't know. So it's there's a lot of questions here. But what's exciting is we've been looking for Earth mass planets for a long time. And as we'll talk about in a minute, it's been hard to find them, much harder than finding some other kinds of planets. And here's one. And it's in a habitable zone around the nearest star to us. And that that all is what makes this an exciting story. There's always the question of 
why does this matter beyond sort of the generic we want to learn things that there are real questions about uh, things like how solar systems are formed how life may be formed how do these planets interact with their stars in ways that we don't understand yet there's a lot of really specific things that we can get into the more that we know but the the issue is is seeing them and and understanding them from such a great distance yeah exactly right so let's talk about how we, well, not we, how scientists, not us, uh, detect uh, exoplanets. And there are there are four major ways of doing this. Um, a couple of them we've spoken about before. A couple of them are a little bit harder to wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah. But let's start with, uh, I think, the simplest, which is direct imaging. Yeah, and that... This is this is what we expect, right? This I, I would think if we said, hey, we found a planet, this is maybe what people would expect. Right. That you have a picture of the sky and you see the planet. <laughs> yeah, that's it. There <laughs> it is. is. Uh, the problem with this is that a lot of these exoplanets we have found orbit their stars very tightly, and the glare of those stars makes makes them hidden from us. Yeah. That the, the light pollution, if you will, from the stars they orbit... Uh, block our view of of the exoplanet. In fact, only about one percent of the exoplanets that we have found today have been found by direct imaging. Yeah, the, the this is a this is a method that tends to find uh, planets that are further away from their stars than some of these other methods right. for reasons that will become clear. But that there is that um, challenge, which is you've got to remove glare. A lot of times, the way this gets done is that basically by extending. You know, what you want to do is have this have some technology that can block out the star. So, so you can block the light, like you're putting your hand up so that the sun doesn't shine in your eyes. You want to block out the light from the star and get rid of that glare and then see if you can see things around it. And you can. There, It's a very small number. It's 1% of the found exoplanets have been found this way. But there are some examples, and it's kind of breathtaking when you see one, that they, they can say, you know, they take several pictures and you can see that there's this blacked out spot in the center, which is the star. And then outside the blackout zone, there's like a haze that you can tell is the glare that they're just trying to see through. But then if you look at some of these examples, you'll see a little smudge a little dot and it's here and then the next shot it's over here and then the next shot it's over here and you're like that's a planet right i mean that yep. we see which for me this is the one that's the most mind-boggling for me actually it's like all these ways we can infer the existence of planets i can totally get behind but the idea that we have come so far in terms of imaging that in certain circumstances we can just take a picture and say that dot is a planet <laughs> around another there star it is. <laughs> that is wild but it, it is it is one of the least fruitful ways of us finding these because we've got to have it's got to be close enough that we can see them it can't be across the galaxy we've got to be able to blot out the glare which is really hard to do and then they They've got to be big enough and far away enough from the star that we can see them and and see their motion over time, which is a challenge because that far out, they uh, move much more slowly around their star. So you've got to be more patient and image it multiple times. So there are lots of reasons that it's hard to do and why it's only 1%. But it is a pretty majestic thing when when it happens that you can actually point at something and say, that is a planet. So the the next... (laughs) <laughs> the next method is way we, we go from simple to complicated this is the weirdest um, one yeah it is the weirdest one it's also only about one percent of exoplanets found but gravitational yeah. micro lensing lensing yeah micro lensing so, so the guy so pogi at ohio state ohio state has is actually uh doing this research and so he he in the podcast that we were listening to he's selling it because he's working on it and it's great but it is only one percent of the exoplanets it's incredibly clever so the idea is that 
uh, microlensing, gravitational lensing in general, is the idea that gravity bends light. And that means heavy objects bend light like a lens bends light. And if you can get your head around that, then imagine this. We're looking at a star that's moving in front of a field of other stars, which means that the gravitational, gravitational micro-lensing stuff, they're generally looking at stars toward the core of the galaxy because there's a, there's a background you can pick up. There's a lot of stuff behind it, and you can see that star against the background of what's behind it. And when you do that, you can uh, make some guesses about the way that that star is going to bend light with its gravity, with its mass. And what you do is you predict a, a particular distortion. And if you imagine it, if you've got a, a single point of mass, which is the star, it's going to bend light like a lens. Imagine a lens that's a perfectly concave, I guess, lens that is bending, um, that is bending the light. That's one point of mass. But what happens if you've got another point of mass in that's right by that star, which would be a planet? If you do that, then the lens isn't quite the same. There's a distortion in the lens. And by looking at these background stars and figuring out the distortion that they're seeing, which is very hard to do, but it can be done, they can, from that distortion, intuit the existence of a planet there. It's got to be big enough for them to pick up the distortion, which means it needs to basically be the size of Saturn or larger. But it actually works. And they can figure out that planets exist in these systems that are toward the, you know, toward the solar, toward the galactic core where they've got a lot of background stars. And, um, and it actually does work, which is just, it boggles, boggles my mind because gravitational lensing alone is a, co a complicated concept. And then the idea that um, somebody said, ah, but what if it wasn't perfect because there was a big planet next to it and they measured it and they figured it out and they actually got it to work. It's amazing. It 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 feels like science fiction. Like yeah, out of all these, this one feels the most made up. I know. How could we? How could we do that? It makes yeah. Even though it's only one percent, it's like it makes me proud to be a human being. It's like, good job, <laughs> yeah. guys. That is amazing. Like it's amazing that you figured that one out. Even though it's not the best method that we found, they're also finding things that are different. Right? They're 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 potentially finding exoplanets that are that are different. They're also able to watch a large amount of sky, find these things, and then refer them basically to other missions to, to confirm them or to zoom in and get more information about them. And they've had some independent confirmations, which is also nice when, when multiple methods confirm the existence of a planet, that's like extra good planet detail. Yep. So, so working up the list, uh, next is radial velocity method. Yeah. Uh, talking about 18% of found exoplanets and it looks at the star itself. So as the planet orbits the star, it will put, uh, basically put a wobble on the star from the, the, the gravity from the planet as it passes by it. And this will cause uh, what we see, the, um, the light from the star, to, to change. We'll see an observable shift in color of the star's light um, in addition to like that little bit of, of movement that the star is being tugged on by a planet in close proximity. Yeah, it's um, so... Yeah, the the idea that that a, a mass of the more mass of the planet, the more it tugs on the star. The star tugs on the planet, but the planet also tugs on the star. The most extreme example of this is if you've got like a dual uh, star system, or if you've even got like a dual planet system. Pluto and and Charon are like this actually, where they're rotating around a center of mass that is outside of Pluto. It's it's in between them. Well, 
in this case, even like Jupiter, the center of mass is still inside the sun. The sun is really big, even though Jupiter is really big. But Jupiter does pull the sun along. The sun doesn't just pull Jupiter. Jupiter pulls the sun. And all the other planets pull the sun a little bit, too. So it's like, how can we see... Uh, you know, a uh, 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 velocity of like 10 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour on a star that's light years away. How would we see that? And the answer is, yeah, it's Doppler shift. Like we know what the spectrum of these planets are by looking at their light through uh, a spectrograph, you know, and and if we see patterns where the spectrum is just shifting a little bit to the red and to the blue, and to the red, and to the blue, incredibly finely. Like right, this, these are these require incredibly precise measurements, but we can do them down to a certain point, and it keeps getting lower and lower. That point where we can do it. When we see those variations, what we are seeing is the star coming toward us, moving away from us, coming toward us, moving away from us. And if it does that in a rhythm, whether it's a single or multiple for a multiple planetary system, that's it. We got it. We solved the mystery. Why is that star? wiggling a little bit and coming toward us and moving away from us it's because it's getting pulled a little tiny bit by the planets that orbit it again kind of amazing astronomers are very clever but it works and you see and you you watch long enough and you have to watch long enough to see the pattern and 18 percent of the exoplanets yeah are found this using using this method which is there was a there was a period where there were a lot of these where i feel like this was like the um, the the first method that really uh, had the big payoff in terms of of uh, of uh, exoplanet findings, but uh, the problem with this is that it really has a bias toward planets that are close to the star and have large masses because the larger the mass and the closer to the star, the more it tugs on the star, and so. This is where we got that whole thing about like, oh, everything in the solar or in the universe, in the galaxy is a hot Jupiter. Like all the planets are these enormous planets that are close to the star, which is nothing like what we have here. But it turns out that's a selection bias based on the way that this measurement works. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, we have the planetary transit method. This is the method that uh, Kepler is using, and it watches a chunk of the sky and watches as the amount of light of a star may flicker may dip and then retain brightness and what that is is the planet orbiting the star and it transiting basically going in front of the star from our point of view so the planet passes between the star and us the amount of light from the star goes down a little bit and if we stay that long enough we can can have uh, a good idea that it is actually a planet passing between the two pretty cool Again, not to not to just be enthusiastic about this, but all of these methods, right, are are so um, they seem so unlikely until you realize that the people building these instruments are able to make minute observations. In the end, to find a planet, you have to be able to notice incredibly minute changes in something. That's the trick. And so with the 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 method that the Kepler uses, the transit method, I mean, we're relying on some luck here with a lot of these. Like with the transit method, it has to actually, the planet actually has to be lined up between us and uh, and the star. Like if it's orbiting kind of up above the plane, then we wouldn't see it because it would never go in front. But if it's, if it, and the closer the better, the more likely it's going to do this. But the I just the idea that on a faraway star a planet will just kind of cross between us and the, and the, and the star and that that it's it's dimming the light of that star it's like an eclipse it's dimming the light of that star just an infinitesimal amount and yet we have sensors that can pick it up 
that's just incredible. But it works. And this is this is almost 80% of all the exoplanets we found, mostly thanks to Kepler, um, because it's looking for these kind of light dips in in patterns. And that that that's how you find exoplanets using the transit method. It's pretty amazing. So up next, uh, we're talking a little bit about what has been found. Mm-hmm. So it's like we said, 3,375 or so confirmed. There's another 4,700 that are candidates. So these are instances or examples where scientists believe that there could be a planet, but they're waiting either for additional confirmation or additional kind of outside testing. Because it's interesting to note, some of these methods take could take an extremely long time to verify right so like the the transit method if the orbit is very long or very erratic it may be uh some amount of time before we see that dip again and so sometimes these are just kind of waiting for a second confirmation right right because again the further off um pogi talked about this in the in the podcast we listened to um his lecture um that you know yay you found jupiter um now wait 10 years <laughs> yeah and confirm that you found it and that's you know that's somebody's entire career uh waiting for this data so it's 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 tough because you can't speed it up the the you just got to watch and this is only a 20 year old field so um there we've only been watching stuff for a relatively short amount of time in terms of finding patterns in planets that are orbiting around stars yep Um, 348 of these are believed to be rocky planets. But again, this goes to the the selection bias you spoke about, that it is easier to see bigger planets. Yeah. And bigger planets are generally gas or... In some cases, ice. But we'll get to to that in a minute. Yeah, I I would put money down that the ratio of uh, (laughs) Earth-ish... small you know smallish rocky planets like earth and mars and venus and mercury that the ratio of them to gas and ice giants uh is not uh 10 to 1 i i would i would put money on that but the selection bias means that we see the big gas planets and it's harder to see the rocky planets but just from what we observe in our own solar system and what we understand about the selection biases uh, it's just going to be harder to find the rocky planets but we are finding them now which we weren't for the first decade plus of uh of finding exoplanets now it's starting to pay off yep so within what we have seen there's some weird stuff worth mm. worth mentioning uh you spoke a couple of times about hot jupiter is basically <sighs> jupiter sized gas giants that are way closer to their star than we, what we see here in our solar system here the innermost planets are rocky bodies and you have to be way far out to get anything um, that's a gas giant. And it was believed that gas giants could only live beyond what's called the ice line. So the ice line in a solar system is the point in which the temperature uh, moves. It gets so cold, basically, that ice would be stable on the, on a surface without an atmosphere. So if you, ta- if you think about an early Earth or an early Venus, any uh, ice that would have been present you know, without an atmosphere could have, would have just boiled off basically. And so you got to be way out here for this ice line. And that's where it was thought that gas giants could form. But all of a sudden we have all these confirmations of huge gas giants and sometimes 
closer to their their stars than Mercury is to our own yeah. sun. Yeah, sometimes a lot closer. And and there was just, look, we only have the one solar system to compare to. So everybody figured, for lots of good reasons, that the big giants go further out because they need to uh, they need to be beyond the ice line in order to really uh, gather all their matter and form out there. Um, okay, good. But now we see hot Jupiters. A lot of hot Jupiters, and mm-hmm. it made everybody who's uh, who whose specialty is in solar system formation go, okay. That's this is when really interesting science happens. It's like, okay, how would that have happened? And I think most of the feeling about it, there's probably a whole episode about this. I think most of the feeling about it is that uh, they probably these these hot Jupiters probably migrated inward, that they started in the outer reaches of the solar system and ended up mi- migrating inward in order to uh, end up where they are. But it's a great example of how, regardless of how they got there, and that's uh, kicked off a whole set of theorization, it also shows us that not every solar system follows the rules that ours does. And that's great because that means we have more more examples and more uh, more data to, to find. That we're not, we are we unique? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Are we rare? We don't know. Um, what we do know is that we don't seem to be our a configuration like our solar system doesn't seem to be overridingly common so far because we're seeing these. Now, again, there's some selection bias there, but there's enough of this hot Jupiter stuff for us to at least know that that uh, there are a lot of solar systems out there that don't look anything like ours, and that's really interesting. So, do we want to talk about some? Of our favorite exoplanets. Okay, this is not a draft. I don't think I prepared for that. But yeah, why don't you talk about uh, about uh, some cool exoplanets? Let's do it. I, you know, for a second, I thought this would be a fun draft, but then I only came up with like five examples. Yeah, so I, be yeah. a short draft. Um, so up first, we have Wasp Twelve B, W A S P Dash Twelve B. Again, very catchy names. Uh, and this <laughs> this jumped out at me in reading is that it is slowly being consumed by its host star, so its orbit is very tight to its sun, and basically is um, being eaten alive by the star. Another ten million years or so, it will be gone. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, buddy. Yeah, you get too close. It's gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, up next, we have uh, a Kepler found planet, uh, Kepler one eighty six F. And it is of note because it is the first rocky planet to be found uh, in what is believed to be the habitable zone around its star, and it's close to Earth size. So this is kind of the first time we saw a planet that we thought maybe uh, could be very Earth-like, potentially. Woo! Earth-ish. 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 Uh, what's up? Say what's next. Uh, 55 uh, Cancer E orbits its star every 18 hours. Hmm. It is 25 times closer to its star than Mercury is to our sun. It's so close that it is tidally locked, which, oh. like you said, means that one side is always facing uh, the star. And it it is proposed to have a rocky core surrounded by a layer of water in a super critical state. So you may think, and you would be right in thinking, that's way too close for liquid water to, to survive that close to a star. But basically, water can get into this state where it is um, uh, trapped, and basically the whole planet is thought to be topped by a blanket of steam. Yeah, it's a bad place to be. It's very strange. PSR B1620-26B. How about that? 
the oldest planet ever discovered so far, about 13 billion years old, 12.7, which is only about a billion years younger than the universe itself. This is very impressive because you've got to keep in mind that in the early universe, there were not heavy um, elements like there are now. The, the, the results of the Big Bang, you know, it was mostly light elements, and it took time for stars to build up heavier elements through nucleosynthesis by uh, fusing a bunch of stuff together and then exploding and seeding the seeding space with the the heavier elements. So to find a a planet this young is also very interesting. And uh, and then there's 91 Aquarii B, which they sold in the press release as Tatooine. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a planet in a triple star system, and this is another example where the more data we get about this stuff, the better idea we have. We live in a single star system, and there are lots of questions about the dynamics of a multiple star system in terms of planets. Could planets exist in there? What would their orbits be like? Would their orbits be consistent? And uh, one way you can find that out, aside from running simulations, is by observing real planets in real multiple star systems which is a thing that we can actually kind of do which is cool so where do we go from here what's the future of exoplanet exploration uh well so kepler is winding down um it's an extended mission now but it's had some hardware problems but it's still gonna gonna be uh doing what it can through 2018 to extend our knowledge uh, but there's also a new uh new mission coming it's called tess transiting exoplanet survey satellite it's launching in 2017 and it will scan the entire sky looking uh for transits so that's exciting because that's i believe its field of vision is much more than than kepler was and it's going to be able to see everything and uh that's really cool because what you need to do is look at lots of stars and measure their brightness over time and then look for the dips look for the, the 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 light uh dimming slightly and then there's discussion about others. Um, the most notable ones that are under uh, uh, conversation, there's something called Exoplanet Sat, which is uh, a proposal to cr- launch a bunch of mini satellites. So the idea that you'd do a launch and you'd have a bunch of little tiny things that were kind of independent, and they're all looking at individual stars. So the idea there was you would task these mini sats looking at individual stars all the time and and be able to get a lot of detailed data because you're not moving your satellite, you're, you're not moving your telescope here and there and here and there and coming back and making more measurements. They would just be de- devoted to it. So that's something that's being discussed. And then NASA is actually actively soliciting plans for other direct imaging missions. So taking the latest advances in optics and uh, creating a space-based telescope that will, would allow us to go back to the first one of these methods we discussed, which is direct imaging. And the idea here is really cool. Um, the idea would be that it would actually be two spacecraft, a telescope, and a shade. So when I talked earlier about holding your hand up to block the sun in order to get the glare out, this would be... Bas- basically that. <laughs> yeah, this would be like ten, 10 or 100,000 miles away from, or kilometers away, far away from the telescope. There'd be this shade buddy. <laughs> and... That is how it would work, is the telescope would point at a star, and the shade, you know, all of this distance away, would use its shade to cover just the light of the star, allowing the rest of the system to be imaged. Um, And the idea there is you can get a lot better imaging if you do that 
uh, use that method. So they're talking about the possibility of doing something like that, which is really exciting because then you could really block that glare and start to take pictures of the systems around the stars instead of just the star, the pinpoint of the, the bright star itself. So that's all to come. But TESS is, I think, the one to, to really keep your eye on because that, that, that TESS is going to discover a lot of exoplanets. Very cool. If you want to see links uh, for all this stuff, you can find it in your podcast app of choice or on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 28. There's a contact link there. If you uh, have topic suggestions or questions, uh, send us a note. You can follow us all on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell. I am at ISMH, and the show is at Liftoff Podcast. Until next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.